huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Spirit without matter is expressionless. And matter without spirit is motionless. It's Rob Moore here. And look. I'm an excitable guy. So sometimes when I say I'm excited, I think people might think, yeah, Rob's always excited. But I really am excited now because I've been a fan of this man's work for 15 years since I first watched The Secret. I think it was about 15 years ago. So I'm sure you all recognize Dr. Joe Vitale here. I am very privileged, as are you, to be spending the next 55 or 60 minutes or so with one of the stars of The Secret. Now, there's so much more to Joe than just The Secret, as we'll find. But, um, Joe, I want to say thank you so much for all the work you've done, not just for the 15 years I've been following you, for, but for decades on behalf of probably millions of people across the world. And you can imagine my surprise and excitement when I saw you posting on social media that you'd read my book, Money. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's that's a bit, bit like me teaching Arnold Schwarzenegger how to bench press. That was a bit of a moment for me. So <laughs> could, could you talk about how that happened? We are here now. How did you find my book? Why did you read it? And maybe start that way. Well, I was in uh, Thailand. I was in Thailand in Bangkok to do a speaking engagement. And what I do everywhere I go is sneak into bookstores. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I'm always learning. I'm always growing. I don't know at all. Somebody may have a new nugget or a new way of looking at things and it can benefit me and then by extension benefit everybody else. And I remember going into a little bookstore at a giant mall in Bangkok, Thailand, and there was a book called Money. And I thought, what is this book? I never heard of this guy. I never heard of this book. And, of course, bought it, devoured it, loved it, and actually went and bought another copy of it when I came back to the States because that version of it had tiny type. And I thought, you know, I'm 67. I need a little bit larger type. And I bought another version of the very same book and still have both of them. So well done. Love the book and reached out, of course, to you. And we've been trying to get together for, I don't know, two years, three years at this point. <laughs> yeah, Joe, thank you so much. That's um, it's a very special moment for me. So thank you. So I know you're a big fan of talking about money. You have your new book, Money Loves Speed, which I'd love to talk about soon. What do you see money as? Because it's a taboo subject here in the UK for many people. I don't think enough about money is taught in schools, and I don't actually think people really know what money is. So what is money to you? Well, money is a means of exchange in the most simple form. It replaced bartering. So instead of me giving you a pile of goat skins and you give me a book, we decide that your book is worth so much money and I give you what we've agreed is the exchange. So it's just a way of exchanging energy and we can make more sense of our bartering in a sense. 
But there's a whole lot more to money. Money has a psychology behind it, maybe even a metaphysics behind it. And I have found that people need to understand the psychology of money in order to actually be able to allow it in their lives and then leverage it. I was homeless. So I had some pretty lousy ideas about money, and I was in poverty for 10 years when I lived in Houston, Texas. So I know what it's like to unconsciously despise money. But I also know what it's like to make peace with money so you can allow it into your life and then you know live the lifestyle of the rich and famous, but also make a difference in the world by directing money where you think it will do the most good. So making peace with money is what I'm all about now. And most of that is about psychology. And why do you think people unconsciously despise money? Because, Joe, 15 and a half years ago, six months before I watched you on The Secret, I was that guy. I looked at someone who had a Ferrari and I thought drug dealer. I looked at someone in a suit in a professional job, job and I thought, you know, yuppie. And I had these horrible money beliefs, which were actually protecting my own hurt and pain. Why do you think people despise money, unconsciously or consciously? Well, there's a primary operating belief that's in virtually everybody's unconscious mind. And believe me, I have been all over the world, and every culture has this in their collective unconscious. I was The last big place I went to before the pandemic was Iran. And even in Iran, I noticed it was there. When I was in Russia, it was there. Ukraine, it was there. Poland, Italy, Bermuda, Canada, United States, UK, everybody has this. And until we expose it, blow the whistle on it, and explain it, it's operating behind the scenes. So what is this belief? All I have to do is begin it, and everybody will end the belief. Money is the root of all. Everybody just said evil. Everybody. I don't care who they are, where they are. They've all heard money is the root of all evil. And even if they sit there and go, oh, I, I, you know, I don't believe that. In their unconscious mind, because it's been in the collective unconscious, because it's been in the media, it's been in religion, it's been in cultures, it's been everybody, it, it, it seeps through the media, it's in TV, it's in movies. We unconsciously absorb it. And then by extension, we know that we need money to pay our bills, we need money to survive. And so we have this internal tug of war. This is why so many people, myself included during the struggle years, would really struggle to get money. And then it would come in at the last minute and I'd have to get rid of it to pay the bills. And then I'd struggle again. It didn't dawn on me until I really started to investigate the psychology behind money, that it was actually that belief, money is the root of all evil, that was causing me to struggle. I didn't want something that I considered to be evil, so I'd wait till the last minute. The bill is due or past due. Now money can come in because I'm only going to have it for a second. I got to spend it. I got to pay the bills. So the big one we have to do is remove that belief. And if you give me a chance, I'll help people do it right now. So I've got some thoughts, but Joe, no, I'd no, love you to do it. I would love to hear um, your thoughts. Okay. So... Um, I usually upset a few people saying this, but, um, you know, the original scripture in religion is apparently the love of money is the root of all evil, as we all get corrected. Um, I don't believe that money is the root of all evil because money is a tool created by humanity. 
um, and if a tool is not evil, you don't try a hammer for murder if someone uses a hammer to smash in a skull. A hammer can put a nail in better than your hand. It can pull out a nail better than your hand, and it can smash someone's <laughs> skull better than your hand. But the hammer doesn't commit the crime. The hammer is a tool for leverage, like the wheel is a tool for leverage. Therefore, money is a tool for leverage. That's all it is. So money is not the root of all evil. But if it is the root of all evil, it has to be also the root of all good. It has to be because you can't have one side without the other. So, I mean, if you look at Oxford University, there are nine main billionaire benefactors in Oxford University. Look at the schools and the libraries, mostly, um, you know, billionaires donating money to that. Um, I think it's, it might be Bill Barm. No, Chuck Feeney. Chuck Feeney's giving away all of his billions. Warren Buffett's giving away 99% of his wealth. <laughs> so if money is the root of all evil, money has to be the root of all good to balance it out. But money isn't the root of all evil. Human beings are the root of all evil, and they use money as the tool. That, that is the way they purvey or they exchange their evil. But you could take $20 and feed 20 kids in a, the developing world for 20 days. Or you could take $20 and buy 20 bullets and go and shoot those same 20 kids. Is that money? No, it's intent from humanity. That's my theory. <laughs> oh, that's a great theory. I've often picked up a pen, which I'm doing right now. I pick up a pen and I'd say, is this pen evil? And of course, we're just looking at a pen. But I say, with this pen, I can probably stab you. With this pen, I can write some really nasty notes. With this pen, I can write a suicide note. With this pen, though, I can also write love letters. I can write songs. I can write poems. I can write the great manifesto. I can write the great American novel. So is the pen evil? Is the pen good? The pen is just the pen. It's a freaking pen. That's what money is. It is neutral. In and of itself, it is neutral. But let's go back to that quote, because I want to make sure we free everybody that's watching this. Money is the root of all evil, as you pointed out, is a fracture of a longer biblical statement. And I always tell people, we don't even know what the original said, because this has come down through centuries. This has been translated, retranslated, put in popular culture. And so we don't really know the exact wording from the beginning of time. But if we go with what's there, the longer phrase, as you pointed out, uh, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So here's the interesting thing. I don't love money. And the very wealthy, healthy, well-adjusted people I know don't love money. We respect it. We appreciate it. We use it. We leverage it. But we don't love money. It'd be a little bit like me saying, I love my pen. It's just the pen. It's just money. It's Rob again, and I have an exciting announcement to make to you, my podcast listeners. So I wrote in my book, Life Leverage, about leveraging time. And let's be honest, no one is getting less busy. Maybe you listen to podcasts now on two times speed. Maybe you 2x and 3x audiobooks. We now got two times speed on WhatsApp messages. And it's for this reason that I absolutely love Blinkist. And it's for two reasons. Reason number one is, if there's a book you want to listen to, but it's eight hours long, you can go on Blinkist and get the 15 minute summary to then decide if you're going to invest eight hours in a book. Reason number two is, the 15 minute summaries on Blinkist are really good. And if you don't want to go deep on a book, and there's loads of other books in your library that you haven't listened to yet, you can blink them and listen to the 15 minute summaries. I also like Blinkist because I can inform myself in bite-sized chunks and times. 
listen to Blinkist in the car, listen to Blinkist in the gym. If I've got a busy day, I can always squeeze in one or two books on Blinkist. So right now, Blinkist has a very special offer just for my audience, you listeners on The Disruptive Entrepreneur. So if you go to Blinkist.com forward slash Rob, you can start a seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. So it's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com forward slash Rob, get 25% off and a seven-day trial. I only ever recommend people and companies I personally use. I love Blinkist with the changing world and the massive information. So go to Blinkist.com forward slash Rob. So I look a little deeper. Walt Disney had this great quote that I said was revealing. I think it's revealing. He said, I want to make money from my movies so I can continue making movies. There's a purity in that statement that I think we all want to go to. I want to make money from my books so I can write more books. It's not about the money. The money, if anything, is a way to calculate whether I'm winning or not, whether I'm earning or not, but it's not about the money. I want to leverage the money for something else. You talked about the people that are doing the great giving. I just finished a book called Karmic Marketing. Karmic marketing is something I've been practicing for decades. I've often said that I built an empire on the word free because karmic marketing is about giving away now, knowing that you're going to get back in some way, shape, or form 10 times what you gave away. I see that Gates and Buffett and all these billionaires and multimillionaires that are signing the giving pledge, where they're pledging to give away the greatest part of their wealth, is actually a tool that is serving them. There's a psychology here. You almost can't give it all away. There was a multimillionaire decades ago called Percy Ross, and he had made millions of dollars, and he decided that he was going to spend the rest of his life giving his money away. He could not do it. There is some sort of psychology, maybe even metaphysics, that as you're trying to give it away, there is something that makes it come back multiplied and spilled over to you. I think when we strip away the idea that money is bad, we now are free to receive it. When we strip away the idea that loving money is bad, we strip away the idea that now we can actually receive it and use it and direct it. I've told people that one of the greatest reasons to be wealthy, to allow money into your life, is that you can direct it to the causes that you believe in, to the people who you believe need it. That is one of the basic reasons. When I was in, when I was homeless and in poverty, I couldn't help anybody, let alone myself. But today, I actually even have a movement to end homelessness, at least in America, uh, called Operation Yes. That's only I'm only able to do it because I've made peace with money. So I want people to realize money, as you pointed out, is not bad. Money is not evil. You can make choices about it that can be considered evil or bad. But if you look at the purity of it and look at Walt Disney and people like him, you can realize that money is a way for you to get your job done. It's a way for you to get your mission accomplished. It's a way for you to get your projects funded and done. If you believe in it, like Walt Disney believed in movies, then it's just a tool to enable you to further your reach. So there you go. Amen. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. I mean, because if you think about money, 
it is a, a universal exchange of value, as economists have figured out. But it's also a, the outcome and the manifestation of the value you previously created, which is not the same as value exchange. Value exchange assumes, you know, we share with each other. But if you have money, that is the result of the value that you've created. And your value is your art and your work and your contribution and your mission and your vision. So to repel money is almost to repel or to hold in your creative expression and your production and your, and, and your value. Something I'd like to pick up on, Joe, that you said, I'm fascinated by this. And I, I've got some theories, but I want to learn as well. This concept that to make more money or attract more money, you have to give money away. And these people that can't give money away quick enough. I've got a friend, Grant Cardone, and he says, look, if you want to make more money, you've got to spend more money. And of course, economists or budgeters or accountants would be like, oh, no, they'd be scared of that. <laughs> right. But there's also this concept of hoarding, which is very unattractive to people and it's very restricting of energy. So can we talk about how we can master giving money away to make more money? Money needs to circulate. And again, I'm going to go back to the psychology of money. I don't know if people really know my work or not, but I'm very much a metaphysician. I'm a psychologist. I'm a metaphysician. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a results-oriented guy. If none of this stuff actually works at the bottom line, I'm not really interested because then it's just feel-good gibberish. So I only am interested in what works. And what I find that works is making peace with money and aiding money in its circulation. So money needs to circulate. A couple ways to help it circulate is by giving it away. Now, when I say give it away, I'm not just talking about driving down the street and throwing it out the window. I'm not even talking about giving it to the homeless people that are on the side of the, your sidewalks, wherever you happen to be. I'm talking about a specific way of giving. And this is part of the new book that will be coming out, Karmic Marketing. I encourage people to give wherever they have received inspiration or spiritual nourishment. That could be an Uber driver. That could be a waiter or waitress. That could be anybody anywhere that said the right thing at the right time and put a little spring in your step. Whoever, whatever that was, that's where you want to give money. Traditionally, in churches, in religion, they talk about giving it to the church. Now, that's tithing, and there's nothing wrong with tithing. I'm not putting down any of you. You want to do that? Please do that. I'm talking about something a little different, though. I'm talking about you tuning into your own heart, your own past experience, and asking yourself, who or what inspired me in the last week, in the last month? Who gave me a reason to keep going? Who gave me a juicy motivational tip? Who gave me something that really uplifted me? That's where you give money. You're giving money there to aid in the circulation of money, but you're also kind of, in quotes, paying for what you got from this person. Now, as you're giving, the other half of this giving scenario is you do expect return, but not from where you gave it. So if somebody sent you money all of a sudden here, that would be great for them, but they shouldn't be looking at you for the return of that money. They can look at it from the collective, from the universe, because the money is now gone into circulation. It will travel around the world, going wherever it happens to go. And as it does, it's going to pick up speed. It's going to pick up more money, and it's going to come to you. 
The other half of this is you have to be willing to receive. If you've made money, if you've made peace with money, and you know money is actually good, it's actually a tool for you to enable uh, your dreams to come true, then when money comes to your doorstep through an idea, through an investment, through somebody giving it to you, perhaps, you can receive it. People do have problems receiving money until they make peace with money. So one of the big things you can do is start giving it away and then expect it to come back. And when it comes back, receive it. The other thing you can start doing is spending it. And I say spend it in a specific way. I call it prosperous purchasing. And I've written about it in Money Love Speed, Attract Money Now, The Awakened Millionaire. I got all kind of books. <laughs> and I write about money in a lot of these different books. Prosperous purchasing is the idea that if there is something you want and you have the funds to get it, I'm not talking about going into debt. I'm not for that. But what I'm talking about is something different. It's prosperous purchasing means there's something you're standing in front of that you want and you have the funds to get it, you almost have to buy it. You almost have to because of the psychology behind it. If you go ahead and purchase it, you're sending signals to yourself. You're sending signals, I am worth it. I have more than enough. I know that I am in the flow of money. I am in the circulation of money. More money is going to come back to me. If you don't do it, if you're standing there and there's something you want and you have the funds to get it and you say, nope, I'm not going to do it. You send opposite signals. I don't have enough money. I have to hold what I have for a rainy day or an emergency. Um, I'm not worth it. All of these are negative limiting beliefs. For me, we live in a belief-driven universe. The beliefs are largely unconscious, which is why I do so much work in that area. But as we make them conscious, as we free ourselves from those beliefs, then we can allow the very good that we've been wanting and dreaming and affirming and expecting to actually come to us. So there's lots of different ways to do it. Giving, karmic marketing kind of an approach, buying, investing, kind of per uh, prosperous purchasing kind of approach. The law of attraction is a big part of the secret. <clears throat> and I feel like there's a lot of people out there who, you know, believe the universe is going to give them what they need. And, you know, the attraction and spirituality and the vacuum law of prosperity and all these things are going to give them wealth and prosperity. But they're not doing enough to go and get it. So where's that balance between law of attraction and action? Um, to go and get what you want in life, make more money, etc. You were on the secret. And are there a lot of people just like meditating, expecting to get rich? I see a few of them on the internet, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> There's more than a few of them on the internet. And let me tell you something. I've written 80 books, 80 books wow. so far, okay? You don't write 80 books by sitting in your chair and visualizing it. <laughs> You got to get, you can start there. You can start by going, oh, I'm going to write books. And you can visualize writing books, but sooner or later, you got to get up. You got to go get your keyboard and you got to start typing. I'm a musician. I have 15 albums out so far. You don't become a musician by sitting there and visualizing, oh, I'm on stage, I'm in the studio, I've got this great band, and affirming it and meditating it and writing uh, scripts about it and doing a lot of what the secret led people to believe was the whole formula. No, that's part of it. But at some point, I got to pick up the phone and I got to call a drummer 
and I got to go call an engineer and I got to book studio time else. It will never happen ever, ever. No books will be written. No music will be recorded. It's the same thing with businesses or anything else. I love the the movie, The Secret. Whether I was in it or not, I'd tell people to go watch it. And I would defend the movie. I would say the movie is an introduction to an idea. That's it. It's an introduction. It's not the be-all. It's not the end-all. It's not the course on how to create your own reality. I also noticed that a lot of people who watch it have a little bit of self-sabotage going on. Because as you've noticed, they will say things like, I saw the movie The Secret, and I went and sat in my chair, and I visualized what I wanted, but it didn't happen. You know what? I am in the movie saying you have to take action. But somehow people fog out when I say it. I even say that it's your job. Those are the exact words. It is your job to take action. Jack Canfield, who's one of the people in The Secret, later after the movie came out said, the word action is in the phrase attraction. Law of attraction has the word action in it. There's a hint, folks. So I say that the the movie is an introduction, but if people actually want to create their own reality, sure, do visualization, do affirming, set your intentions. But at some point, man, if you're trying to build muscle, you referred to Arnold Schwarzenegger earlier, if you're trying to build muscle, he's not just sitting and visualizing. He definitely sits and visualizes. He's talked about mental imagery, but he's in the gym every day of his entire life. So Action is important. Amen to that. <clears throat> Next thing I'd like to talk about, which again is not quite linked to money, but then we'll come back, is the unified field. Hmm. So I've done a bit of research and study on this, and I feel like, like if you think about it, if radio waves and fiber optics can send all this information out, why can't our brains? And I think that the human mind or whatever is going on in the universe, hmm. um, it, it, I don't think we understand even 1% of its power. Right. Um, but I, I know that you've, um, you say you're into metaphysics. So could you talk about unified field theory, uh, you, you know, maybe how you perceive how things are created, ideas, you know, how you turn the ethereal into the real, the spiritual into the material? What great questions you asked. I didn't know that we would go to this level, which is kind of juicy. You know, I'm all real excited. And at the same time, I have to admit, I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm not a scientist who can articulate. And probably the ones I've been listening to really can't articulate it either. I think we're all kind of stumbling around in the dark. So let me explain it the way I, at this point in time, understand it. I call it an esoteric internet. We live in an esoteric internet. And what that means is we are all co connected on an invisible deep level. If we want to look at psychology, Carl Jung probably came the closest when he said there was a collective unconscious. We have the conscious mind. Most people are using it as they're watching us and listening to us. We have the subconscious mind, which is a little below it and is more of a database of past experiences. We have the unconscious mind, which is even bigger than that and has more of the darker experiences that are in it, depending on whether you listen to Freud or Jung or 
Erickson or some of the other more modern uh, psychologists. But below that, where we're all connected, is kind of a collective unconscious. We have shared experiences through there. We're almost connected on a wireless system on that invisible mental level. Now, how this works for us to get the results that we want does involve setting intentions, some of the stuff that was in the secret. Setting intentions means, what do you want to have? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? Do you want to create some sort of business? Do you have some retail shop that you want to do well? How would you answer the question, what would I like to have? What do I want to have, do, or be? That's different for everybody, but that it all begins with an intention. Then we want a visual. And the reason we want a visual is our brain responds to images. The brain doesn't necessarily respond to words, though the words can give a sense of the images. It responds more to pictures, to art, to graphics. And so we have an intention, which we state, we can write it down. And then we look for or create the graphics, which tell our brain, this is what we want. Then the third thing we do is we add feeling to it. We tend to bring into our lives the things we love, we hate, and we fear. Most of us are doing this on an unconscious level. We're not even aware of this, and which also explains why we spend so much time arguing and fearing and hating, and we end up getting more of it. It just seems to keep shoveling the flames. What I tell people to do instead is you state your intention, you find the graphics that represent the intention, and then you look at it with love. You activate the passion. What this is doing, first on the neuroscience level, it activates the brain. The brain now says, oh, here's his or her target. Let's go looking for it. When this is strong enough, the image is clear enough, the intention is clear enough, and the the emotion is strong enough, you've added fire, you've added gasoline, you've added petrol to your intention, it sends a signal further down into your consciousness to the collective unconscious. That collective unconscious, think of the wireless internet and esoteric internet, is now receiving that message and will travel along the seven or eight billion people that are on the planet looking for the ones who might help you fulfill that intention to manifest it, to attract it. And what will happen is that somebody in another country, maybe at three in the morning, will receive an idea to notify you, to contact you. And this, of course, is going to happen in ways as Wallace Waddles in The Science of Getting Rich in 1909 said, all the miracles happen in natural ways. Don't expect the sudden Harry Potter kind of an experience. Everything is going to fall together and you will manifest what you want. But It'll happen through natural ways, which means you can explain it away and dismiss the magic, dismiss the miracle and just go, oh, well, so-and-so called me. Or I picked up a book in Thailand called Money, and three years later, I end up talking to the guy who wrote the book. And we have this most amazing in-depth conversation. We'll explain the magic away because we'll reduce it to cause and effect. I'm saying there's a deeper cause and effect. This is Dr. Joe's view of how the, oper- how the universe operates. And I may adjust this over time. But right now, it really feels like there's an esoteric wireless internet that is operating on the mental level. And when we're clear about what we want, we have a vision of what we want, we, um, 
we have the feeling of what we want and of course take action i almost don't even say it because for me it's so obvious that you have to take action if there's an opportunity in front of you if you have an intuitive hit to do something or start something by god do it that's part of the co-creation process i can go on forever i'm gonna pause <laughs> oh man yeah i'm getting very excited talking about this this is fascinating <clears throat> Um, thank you for that, um, Joe. So are spiritual people not material and are materialistic people not spiritual? This, I love your questions. My goodness, you're good at this. You know, that's, that's the division that a lot of people fall into. I wrote a book called The Awakened Millionaire. And what my goal was with The Awakened Millionaire is to have people be spiritual and material. They're not separate. They're two sides of the same freaking coin. You can make them separate. You can create an illusion for yourself and operate from the illusion. This is why so many people go, oh, I don't want money. I'm spiritual. And they will denounce materialism. But what's behind that? What's behind that is they still think money's bad. For a lot of the people who say that I'm a spiritual person, I really don't want money, I really don't need money, first of all, yes, you do need money. Even Mother Teresa and Gandhi, some of the greatest spiritual people in, or on the, ever that were on the planet, needed money, attracted money, used money, leveraged money, asked for more money, spent the money. They, all the people, we all need money. Nobody's getting all the bills free. Nobody's getting a free ride through life here. So the person that is saying I'm spiritual, they have a kind of a snobbery about them and an unconsciousness about them. It's kind of a self-sabotage to say that I don't want money and I don't need money because I'm going to live this bare bones kind of a life. I think that they are actually imbalanced. They're not totally congruent and they're not healthy. By the same extreme, the opposite side, the materialist who say, I'm not spiritual. I don't even know what spirituality is. I believe in one sign, a dollar sign. And they pursue that. They go after that. And there will be a whole lot of people who will applaud that. Those people are putting down spirituality, not knowing that they've actually judged spirituality as being bad because they don't know that there's a place for both. They don't know that money's actually spiritual. One of the greatest quotes I ever came across, and I wish it had been my quote, but it wasn't. It was by an author of the, by the name of Arnold Patton. He wrote a real little book called Money. And in that book is this one line. And he said, the sole purpose of money is to express appreciation. The sole purpose of money is to express appreciation. That's it. Now, when I first saw that line in his little book, I thought, oh, come on, there has to be a mistake. There, there's there's got to be a, you know, a loophole or something there. And then I started to think, oh, when I pay the phone bill, I'm grateful to have the phone. When I pay the grocery bill, I'm grateful to have food. When I pay a car payment or house payment or whatever, I'm grateful to have a car. I'm grateful to have a house. And then I started to realize, wow, what do most of us do when we write our bills is we complain. We're complaining like we're losing money. And instead, it should be a, an offer of thank you. 
So the people that are too material are missing the spiritual of life, and the people that are too spiritual are missing the material of life. I think they both need to go together to what I phrase the awakened millionaire. And at that point, they use money, they appreciate money, they can share it, they can spend it, they can invest it, and they can be at peace. You're like the uncle I never had, Dr. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> you, oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone needs a mentor in their life when they're young, I think, and I never had one. I wish I had someone as wise as you when I was young and a bit lost. Um, Believe me, I've been lost long enough to want the same thing. <laughs> yes. Um, I was having a chat with John Demartini a couple of years back, and he, he gave me this quote. I forget who the original quote is from. Spirit without matter is expressionless, and matter without spirit is motionless. So matter without spirit is just a dead rock that has nothing. But spirit without matter is also just an ethereal thing. I see you've got a lovely – is that a Flying V guitar behind you there? Uh, Yes, it is. Uh, This one was handmade by a local luthier, Tony Nobles. And this one, we're talking about giving. This was given to me. This is a handmade, very expensive, has gold trim on it and so forth. Spectacular guitar. It was handed to me. (laughs) So there's a lot of spirit in that piece of material wood and metal then. Oh, my. I got chills when you said that. First of all, any handmade guitar, especially one by Tony Nobles, is infused with the energy, with the intention, with the personality of the man who hand-carved it. I mean, this was a tree trunk. He hand-carved the wood. And this did not take a week. This is like six months worth of hand-carving. He has aluminum knobs on it that he chiseled by hand. And then you have to go back to, it's kind of a demonstration of the very process I was talking about. He started with an intention. I'm going to build a guitar. What kind of guitar? He started to imagine it. Well, I think I'm going to go with the old traditional V-shaped. I always liked it. Then he started talking about what kind of wood would I use? So he's visualizing wood. He's using ancient wood. I forget the name of it that's on this thing. So it has a timber, a sound to it that's different from most guitars. So he goes through this whole process of visualizing, of intending, of feeling, of creating, of doing the work of the action. Then when he's ready to sell it, I actually tried to buy it. I tried to buy it. He had told me and a few other people about it. And I said, bring it on over. Let me see it and I'll probably buy it. But before I could buy it, he said, Joe Walsh, the famous rock and roll singer and guitarist, bought it. Well, it turns out Joe Walsh did not buy it. An anonymous person who knew me and wanted me to have it as a gift bought it. And Tony Nobles just said Joe Walsh to stop me from pursuing it, though Joe Walsh buys a lot of Tony Nobles guitars. And then I got a phone call one day that said, go to your front door. There's a giant package for you. Go get it before anybody claims it. And it was an anonymous gift worth about 10 grand. Yeah, and people say that, you know, materialism is bad and i have a 1987 ferrari testarossa 12,000 miles all the leather goods everything absolutely mint and when i was seven and eight years old and my dad employed me in his pub which he probably couldn't do now it's probably illegal but back then he got me emptying the 
slot machines and the pool tables and counting all the money. He even got me on the cashier taking money from customers and taught me how to count money, how to, you know, work and the ethic of work and how to get paid and how to create value. And every week when I'd get paid my one pound, I'd go down to the local shop where they had all the pictures of all the beautiful cars, the Lamborghinis, the <coughs> Ferraris, the Corvettes. And it was the Ferrari Testarossa. And that was the one that I want. And I put every single picture I could buy of a Ferrari Testarossa up on the wall. And beautiful. You know, I don't know how handmade it is, but it doesn't look, it looks like it's handmade compared to cars now. Right. And, and, and then when you give enough value to enough people and you've sold enough books and you've done enough good in the world, you have enough money to buy one for cash from a previous collector. The previous collector put it in a vacuum packed. You can vacuum pack these cars so that it protects them. It had it in there for like 12 years. But I actually drive it around and I just sit in it and it just reminds me the stink of um, petrol. It just reminds me of being seven and eight years old and having a dream. And people tell me that materialism is bad. That is such a beautiful story. And I want to see a picture of your car at some point. Whenever I get over there, I want to ride. Um, But you also illustrated the process of manifestation the way I teach it. You had a goal. You had a dream. You even got photos of it, which is the graphics of it. And you maintained the feeling and the longing for it. And as you also pointed out, as you just explained, when you do enough good in the world, you're rewarded with this cash that's coming to you, which you have a choice to do something with. And you did a lot of choices along the way, but you also had one, making this childhood dream come true. I'm a car guy, so let me tell you a quick car uh, story, which I think illustrates a few lessons for the people watching, and I think you enjoy. Several years ago, I bought a Rolls-Royce Phantom, brand new. A Rolls-Royce Phantom. Now, I had never in my life thought about Rolls-Royces, but I had gone to this dealership in California, and I was looking for a different kind of car, but there was a Rolls-Royce Phantom sitting there, and I was in awe. I was in awe. My jaw dropped. It's like, what kind of divine car is this? You know, if Buddha came back, I think he'd be in a Rolls-Royce Phantom. He wouldn't be walking around on sandals. He'd want to be in the most (laughs) divine car ever made. And so I decided I wanted that car. As you know, it's a very expensive car for a guy who had been homeless, for a guy who had been in poverty, for a guy who couldn't make house payments, car payments, food payments, anything like that. Here I am about to buy a half a million dollar car. So I'm looking at the car, and I am just in awe of this car. And we open up the door, suicide doors in the back and sleek and everything. As I'm walking around, I thought, man, this car is so big, you can almost do meetings in it. And a light bulb went off above me. And I thought, I wonder if I can do meetings in it. And I bought the car, and I wrote an email to my list saying, I am announcing a Rolls-Royce Mastermind. This is for one or two people who would like to fly into the Austin, Texas area, which is where I'm living, and uh, I will pick you up at a Rolls-Royce Phantom. We will go for a nice ride. We will have a nice leisurely dinner, and I'll take you back to the airport and you can go back to where you came from. And I remember writing that email, and I remember thinking, will anybody go for this? And then I thought, what would I charge? And I'm thinking, I'm making all this up. And I said, $10,000 U.S. a person, $10,000 U.S. a person. I was making it up. And I thought, I don't know if it's going to win or not, but let's roll the dice. Let's find out. I did Rolls-Royce Phantom 
mastermind dinners for the next four years. People flew in from every country, from Japan, from Italy, from Poland, from Switzerland, and they only flew in for one reason, to go up for a ride with me in the car. I still remember the very first one I did because I didn't know what this was going to be like. And a woman sat in the back seat with me, and I had a driver so that I can focus on the person who paid to be with me. And she was just kind of gaga. She couldn't even talk for the first hour. And then when we finally got a want, get, get some wine in her, she started to open up and tell me what was on her mind. So the whole point of this is the, the prosperous purchasing that I did for that Rolls-Royce Phantom opened me for an idea that actually paid for the Rolls-Royce Phantom. I love that story. I love it. You, um, I'm inspired to go and do something similar. In, in the UK, you have a company structure called an LLP, which I believe is like an LLC in, in the US. And in the UK, in a limited company, you have company car tax, and it's very penal. You pay just you know, a car that's just £30,000, and you could pay quite a few hundred pounds in company car tax. Hmm. But as long as you have a, a fair trading business, you can run a car through an LLP, the entire car, the purchase, and you can run it off the balance sheet, depreciate it. You can run all the – you can even have the valeting, the, the, the wrapping of the car, everything, and you can have one car per partner. So Mark and I have uh, – one, one of our companies is an LLP, and we run a Lamborghini Aventador through it, which is obviously good for marketing because, you nice. know, it's part of the, you know, the um, – the, the visual representation of what success is, basically getting that car for free and, it's, and pay, paying for it on pre-tax money, not post-tax money, which makes a massive difference. And we have a, a couple of Porsches and a Range Rover in it. But the point here is, Joe, the intention, isn't it? It's like I either can't do it because I can't afford it or I can find a way by being creative to actually not just have this as a liability, but almost even have this as an asset. Yes, yes. Very powerful. What you're illustrating is I have an operating belief. My operating belief is there is always a way. There is always a way. So whatever the challenge is, whatever the problem is, whatever the goal is, there is always a way to achieve it. The way may already exist, and you can find it by doing some research, doing some Googling. The way may need to be created because maybe it's never been done before, but with a little bit of application and action, you can find a way or create a way. So it's an operating belief for me. There is always a way. Yes, I just bought a Rolls-Royce Phantom. What do I do with it besides show it off and drive it? Oh, there is always a way to make money from it. How about if we have have people fly in and go for a ride? <laughs> I've just made an e- I've just sent an email to myself writing there is an always a way because I think that's a great life mantra. Um, yes. I- I've got a I've got a friend who owns shop.com. She does about a billion dollars a year in revenue. And she said, Rob, I eat problems for breakfast. And I also wrote that down because I think that's another brilliant mantra. Um, But there is always a way because, you know, with the lockdown and, you know, collective depression and fear, fear is probably the big thing that makes you think you can't. There is always a way. 
So thank you for that, Joe. Should we, I know we've got 11 minutes left and I could take 11 hours of your time because I'm enjoying this so much. So should we do a quick fire? Maybe we'll do 11 questions, 11 minutes, one minute per question. We can, but let me tell you a quick story that I think is relevant. Uh, do you mind or do you want to go to the oh, Please, please go. Okay. When I went to Thailand, when I found your book, I had gone for the very first time because a young man had brought me over there for a seminar he was putting on. And it was his very first seminar. When I got there, I met him at the airport. He's 35 years old. And I'm like, wow, this is a young guy putting on events for the first time and bringing me over at great expense because I wasn't, I wasn't going for free. <laughs> and, and so he tells me his story. He said, 15 years earlier, when he was 20 years old, he was homeless in Thailand. He was homeless, and he called back to his home friends and asked for help. And the friend he called wouldn't give him any help. He said, I'll send you a book, but I won't send you money. I thought, that's pretty bold. That's pretty stark. They sent him a copy of the book, The Secret, which was what the movie was based on, where the movie came first and the book came afterwards. So he sent him the copy of the book, The Secret. He reads it. He reads about affirmation, visualizations, and all that. He thinks, this is BS. He says, I'm going to prove this book wrong. I'm going to prove this book wrong. And then he starts to do intentions, visualizations, meditation, and he's smart enough to take action. Long story short, 15 years later, when he's meeting me at the airport, he's a billionaire, a billionaire the largest real estate developer in southern Thailand. He brought me over, and actually he even paid for me to have a, a week of R&R. &R. He paid for my vacation. He told me he'd put me up in Phuket, and he did, uh, put me in this giant resort all by myself. Um, he took care of me. He spent lots of money because he said he owed his success to me. I didn't have anything to do with this. I mean, I was at the movie The Secret. He read my books and so forth, but he applied them. And I love telling the story because a lot of people think this stuff doesn't work for me. It works for everybody else. It doesn't work for me. Here is a 20-year-old guy who is homeless who wants to prove the very things you and I teach don't work. Not only does he prove they work, he becomes not a millionaire, not a multimillionaire, a billionaire. He had 20, he still has 20 other businesses like a gym, coffee shops, petrol stations, and a few other things. So I always like telling it because I want people to be inspired. I want them to realize, yeah, it worked for me, it works for you, but it works for everybody that actually applies it. Wow. Right, let's do, we've got eight minutes. All right, whatever so you got. we'll do eight <laughs> questions in eight minutes. All right. Uh, right. What do millionaires know that zero heirs do not? Millionaires have something in common. I did a brief Instagram video on this a while back. They um, exercise every day. They meditate every day. And they read every day. Those three things on some research that was being done proved that those are th three things that they do that other people that are struggling don't do. Could you give us three tips in a minute or less on how to make more money? Three tips in a minute or less. Okay. I would say number one is listen to complaints. Complaints are opportunities. Whether it's you complaining or somebody standing in line somewhere saying, I wish somebody would do something about such and such. That's your cue. That is your opportunity to create a product or service to solve whatever the problem is. So listen to complaints. The second thing is, and this is where the title of my book, Money Love Speed, comes from. When you get an idea, by God, act on it fast. 
the faster you act on ideas that come to you, the faster you bring them to the marketplace and the faster you can profit from them. Most people don't act on ideas. They talk themselves out of it. The third thing that I would say is uh, go read his book, Money. <laughs> oh, Joe, thank you. Definitely go and read Joe's book, Money Love Speed. We're going to do some plugs for your books in a moment, Joe. Um, okay, what's the best advice you ever received? What's the best advice I ever received? Oh, my gosh. This is one of those cruel questions because I've had so much advice. And after this interview, I'll go, oh, why didn't I say this? You know, I wrote a book on P.T. Barnum, who was the circus magnet and uh, profound man who did lots of different things from being an entrepreneur to a marketer to a uh, a um, publicist and speaker and this, that and the other. He said we cannot um, we cannot all see alike, but we can all do good. And I've always remembered that we cannot all see alike. We cannot all agree on everything, but we can all do good. I want to do good. What's the worst advice you ever remember receiving? When I was a kid, my father said the best way to double your money was to fold it over and put it back in your pocket. Well, when I was growing up, I thought that is brilliant. My father is just he's funny. He's smart. He's experienced. But then I realized I was struggling with money. And I thought, maybe my father, who was struggling with money and grew up in the Great Depression in America in 1929, maybe he didn't know everything about money. So I found that folding it over and putting it back in your pocket was not the smartest thing to do. (laughs) Joe, do you think there's a current um, swathe or propensity to bash successful people? What do you think about that? Guru bashing, if you like. Yes, and I think that's always been there. I think it's it's more noticeable now because of social media and the ease that people have in punching people in the face, so to speak, uh, doing it through text and doing it through behind a computer. I think it's very revealing that people have all these beliefs about success and about money and about the deservingness, and instead of doing the self-work, to find and explore and release their own beliefs, they just punch other people. Hmm. Um, I think Mike Tyson. Yes. Um, said, That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> that, that, that meme that's gone around. Yeah, I, I met Mike Tyson when I went back to Thailand the second time. He was one of the speakers with me. And, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. You know, when I was like 17 years old, I had never met heavyweight boxing champion. Now that I've seen Mike Tyson, he just would have breathed on me and I would have turned to dust. <laughs> Love it. Joe, is there one thing wrong with the world that you'd like to change? Uh, there's too much fear. We are falling into fear and not falling into faith. Certainly there are things to be aware of in the world, but at the same time, we don't need to live from this cowardly, fearsome place where everything can hurt us. We need to come more from faith, trust. I always write things down while I'm doing these interviews. I'm not emailing my wife. I'm (laughs) writing loads of things down from you that are lessons because I'm like you, Joe. I love to learn from everyone. Right. Instead of falling into fear, fall into faith. I think I'll do an image quote on that and I'll credit you with that. Oh, thank you. Put that on my stories. That's great. What's your one most opulent purchase? Is it the Rolls Royce or have you spent more money? 
Wow, my one most opulent purchase. Wow. Uh, I will say a side note, I love purchasing. I love buying things, and I buy very collectible things. Part of it is a reward to myself, and I think people need to reward themselves. Whenever I've done something noteworthy, whether it was appearing in the movie The Secret or a new book coming out or a new music album coming out or some sort of win, I like to look around and go, okay, what would be a nice thing for me to have? For a while, they were cars, and so I had 15 cars at one point, and then I thought, I can't drive all these cars. And then for a while, it was guitars, and I had 114 guitars at one point. And um, probably the biggest, most opulent would be the Rolls-Royce Phantom, and I can't praise it enough because I really do think if there's any sort of manufactured divinity, it was probably the Rolls-Royce Phantom. Is there a particular money master that you really admire? A money master. I am a fan of Ray Dalio. Uh, he wrote the book Principles, which is something you'll probably spend the rest of your life reading and trying to understand and apply. And the other day I saw a film about, oh, I hope I get his name right, David uh, Geffen, who was the music promoter and the movie promoter and a billionaire. Both of them are billionaires. So those two come to mind. Mm. I just want to say it was so sad about Ray Dalio's son who died in a car accident. Um, yes. I just want to oh, have a little yeah. moment to honor that. Yeah. yeah. Um, if there was one person alive, you would tune in to my podcast to watch no matter what was going on, who would it be? One person alive. Wow. Um, I, I'm a fan of a lot of different people. I don't know why. Maybe it's because you mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger in the beginning. I, I, I've, I've met Arnold, but I've never sat down with him. And I would love to sit down and have a cigar with the guy. I love cigars. I think he is an icon. I think he's brilliant when it comes to money, when it comes to action. And he lives the principles of intending, visualizing, feeling, and certainly taking action. And to accomplish all that he has in so many different ways. I read his autobiography called Total Recall, and I was just fascinated, fascinated. So I think if you sat down with him and really picked his brains and kind of pushed him into a corner a few times to get him to reveal some of the things he's done, I'd be there. Hey, man, I've met him and spent quite a lot of time with him, but again, didn't get to yeah. sit one-to-one -one and have the cigar. So I'll keep trying on that one, Joe. <laughs> I've really, really enjoyed this. And before we finish, just two things. Number one, um, our show is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Uh, break the pattern of what's being done. Do something that is completely new. I just sold, I, I had gone through a divorce, and I sold my house of 20-some years. And the realtor who took it over she was more of a listing agent. I kept thinking, you need to do something disruptive. You need to do something different. You need to do something that will bring attention. So something out of the norm, something out of the habit of what everybody else is doing, including the person doing it. Amen. And Joe, I want as many people watching and listening across all the social media, we'll put this on, to go and follow you and consume your work. So what are the main places we could go to? Maybe pick your top two books and maybe your, your, your social media channel you're most active on. Well, thank you. Probably my most popular book is called The Attractor Factor. The Attractor Factor is what got me into the movie The Secret. 
The next book, most popular, is called Zero Limits. And Zero Limits is about a Hawaiian healing method called Ho'oponopono, which has changed uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, I am very active on Instagram. I'm Dr. Joe Vitale there, D-R Joe Vitale. I'm posting one or two videos probably a day on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And on Facebook, I'm Dr. Joe Vitale. Main website, vitalilifemastery.com. Vitalilifemastery.com. And thank you. I love this. Been looking forward to this. And you are so articulate, charming, in-depth, and uh, fun to be with that I would do this again in a heartbeat. Me too. Dr. Joe, I'm sure there'll be more things to do together. I'm so grateful. And uh, thanks for giving your time. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Hey, it's Rob again, and I need to own up to something. Entrepreneurs don't celebrate enough. I bet you don't. I know I don't. And we went through the five-year anniversary of The Disruptive Entrepreneur, which is a massive achievement. And the 600th episode, which again, how many podcasts have done 600 episodes? And we didn't even celebrate. So I want to celebrate the 600th episode and the five-year anniversary with you. We have something new and special that I think you're going to love. Now, many of you who listen, you're on my Facebook supporter program. You get 10 pieces of content with me as a bonus over and above what the general public get. We have supporter-only meetups, socials, dinners. I do Ask Me Anythings every sort of two weeks or so live. We do Make Cash and Social Media Challenges. You get discounts at You get to come to events and you get premium ticket upgrades and so much more. But what I've done to celebrate the five-year anniversary, the 600th episode, is actually created a decentralized platform called Rob.Team. Many of you don't use Facebook. We're in a a more modern decentralized age now. So if you go right now to Rob.Team, www.rob.team, you can join my supporter and Rob.Team program. You can choose whether you enroll on Facebook or the non-native decentralized platform that I've built specially for you. And for just £5 or $5 a month, cancel any time. You get 10 premium pieces of content from me you don't get anywhere else, deep dive content. You get supporter and team only meetups, socials and dinners throughout the year. A two weekly Ask Me Anything Live that I don't do in any public situation anymore. We do seven day challenges about five times a year. Make cash challenges, social media challenges. You get premium ticket upgrades, special discounts. I have um, three Facebook account managers. We often have Zoom meetings with them and then we update you sort of from the horse's mouth live um, what they shared with us. Um, Whenever we do events and webinars, we never do replays or recordings. But as a supporter and team member, you get those free. You get an extra 10% discount off any of my trainings. And get this, if you're one of the first 60, I can't do 600, you'll see why. Then I'm actually going to do a 15-minute one-to-one personal call with you. And if you're one of the first 256, I've just set up a brand new Rob.Team WhatsApp group where you'll get my mobile number and you know, we can share strategies and tactics together. So go right now to www.rob.team. That's www.rob.team. First 50, get a 15-minute one-to-one call with me. Um, I'm going to do that after your first month subscription. And, I, you know, it's going to take me a bit of time to do that, but I'll do it. I'll, I'm a man of my word. 
and the first 256, you get into the Rob.team supporters only WhatsApp group. There's loads of bonuses in there. This program has been running for two years. My six stage, seven figure launch formula, which was a paid for course, it's in there. How to write a best selling book course is in there. PAVA and social media manager and brand manager documents and job descriptions are in there. Marketing KPIs documents are in there. How to dramatically increase your fees. The book I'm writing, the up to date version is in there. There's so much content. It's only £5 or $5 a month. Uh, and I'm adding this new platform, Rob.team, to celebrate the 50th year anniversary and the 600 episodes. And the first 60, 15 minute one to one call with me, first 256, get into the um, exclusive WhatsApp group. So be quick, go now because we have millions of subscribers and downloads and views a week now for the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show across all platforms. So see you there at www.rob.team. Go now. <laughs>